Hi, my name's Steve. I'm a functional atheist. <laughs> I don't know if that's... If you weren't here last week, you need to get the podcast. But uh, we, we talked about the challenge of being functional atheists and uh, how the series that we're in at the moment is uh, called Public Service, Living a Life of Faith in the Workplace. And that uh, really our ministry is is less about the two hours here on a Sunday and way more about what we take into the workplace that God has placed us. That uh, we are all actually in the public service, even though there's many of us here who are literally in the public service, but there's the element for all of us that we are in public service and that we live a life of faith in our workplace and the challenges of that. So whether we're consultants, contractors, employees, retirees, students, domestic engineers... Whatever our service is, all of us are in full-time ministry. It's not just what happens here on a weekend. All of us are in full-time ministry. And sometimes uh, we're challenged last week with the reality that we act as functional atheists in as much as we actually don't take the bigness and the presence of God into the workplaces where he has placed us. And uh, if we're going to see... Our church's vision of changing Canberra anywhere near uh, kind of reached, then you and I need to be changing the workplaces in which we find ourselves. And so the questions of meaning and purpose and calling and ethics and character and spiritual identity are all expressed in our workplace and our engagement with people um, that God has placed in our world. And our goal as a church is to multiply people, you people, deeply transformed by the work of God, by the presence of God, by moments like we've experienced this morning that transforms each of us to be able to go and make a difference in the world and in the culture that we have been placed. We're not spectators. We're not consumers. We're actually participants and purveyors of the goodness of God. And so each and every one of us are called into full-time ministry by Christ to make a difference. And every sphere of daily activity is, whether it's paid or unpaid, whatever it may be, is, it constitutes your field of ministry. And so I hope over this series in the next few weeks, as we unpack this more, um, that uh, this will become a reality. So really what we're talking about is the faith work integration and there's some key dynamics around the faith work integration. The first one is vocation. Your vocation is actually the sense of call uh, and the reality and the realization that your work is meaningful. So when uh, in the Garden of Eden, we weren't delivered from work and said that we will not work anymore. We're actually sent to work. Your work is the place of meaning and purpose being outworked and fulfilled in your life. So if we have a vocation that we don't bring the faith dimension of our world into, then I question the reality of the, the sense of call. So our vocation is the sense of call that our work is meaningful. What you do in the workplace makes a difference. And it's who you do it with that is so important. So the faith work integration is also about devotion, you know, deepening a sense of faith and purpose in the workplace. It's also about influence, how you conduct yourself in the workplace 
impacts other people and their experience and their progression of faith. And then separation, sometimes uh, you know, we separate faith and work. And so Sundays we're very spiritual and the rest of the week we're, we're uh, functional atheists. And so we want to make sure this, that separation is minimized and that obviously there's certain things. I wouldn't suggest that you practice tongues and interpretation in the workplace, for instance. I wouldn't suggest that that would be a good idea because that's reserved for people in the church context where the presence of God is here and that it's done indecently and in order. But we need to understand that who you are, you're not a separated person. You're not um, you know, secular when you're at work and spiritual when you come to church. You are who you are. You are who God has made you to be. And you make a difference wherever you go. And that's the power and the reality of it. Last week we challenged, as already mentioned, are you a functional atheist? You actually believe uh, on Sunday, but the rest of the week you actually don't believe the power of God is going to make a difference in the people and the workplace that you're in. Or, um, and the other thing we touched on last week, that everyone that we work with has a name. Society is trying to dehumanize people, reduce them to a number, reduce them to a task, but you are rubbing shoulders with people who have a name. And the name is given to them for a reason, and you call something out of them by name. And um, the third thing we talked about last week was that your presence shift atmos- shifts atmospheres. When you turn up, there's an unsettling in the spiritual dark dimension that's because you're carrying the presence of God, it actually makes a difference. And so you make a difference. So I want to, again this week, talk about three different things. Do you know who you are? Do you comprehend what you're dealing with? And are you conscious of what you carry? And I want to revisit again 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 6 out of the message, stirring portion of scripture. The world is unprincipled. It's dog eat dog out there. The world doesn't fight fair, but we don't live or fight our battles that way. Never have and never will. The tools of our trade aren't for marketing or manipulation, but they are for demolishing that entirely massive, corrupt, massively corrupt culture. We use our powerful God. Sorry, we use our powerful God tools for smashing warped philosophies, tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God, and fitting every loose thought and emotion and impulse into the structure of life shaped by Christ. That's what we're doing. We're smashing warped philosophies and the power of that. Before I was in vocational ministry, I was in construction for 25 years. Uh, and I, I did a, uh, a cadetship uh, as, uh, with Westfield Design and Construction, building shopping centres and that kind of thing. And I had to do a, a degree. It was a part-time degree, a Bachelor of Applied Science in Construction Management. And so I did that part-time. I was doing that part-time one day and two nights a week. I had, I had friends who were full-time students who were doing less face-to-face hours than I was part-time. There's always injustice in life, isn't there? I don't, I don't know. I don't know how that worked. But anyway, so as a 22-year-old, I think it was my third or fourth year of my degree, one of the things that we had to do was to uh, identify a union leader and go and interview them. And um, 
This is at a time, uh, late 70s, early 80s, when the construction industry in Sydney was, at a, it was really volatile. They were, there was uh, all sorts of things going on. They were trying to, uh, they were lobbying for rostered day offs and shorter work week and all that kind of thing, which is what they were usually doing. And, and so, and obviously unions represent possibly more the left wing of the political spectrum and I was working for a company that probably represented the right wing of the political spectrum. And so I find myself uh, on building sites where regularly union people would turn up and stir up trouble and make things, make things up and then we'd have to you know, deal with these problems and all this kind of thing. So I'm tasked with uh, this assignment to go and interview a union official. And it scared the living daylights out of me because I'd seen what these guys were like. I'd seen what these guys did on building sites. And so I got tasked of all unions to go and interview the, lead, the head of the New South Wales Plumbers and Gas Fitters Union. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? So it was, and uh, they were particularly militant at the time. And so I was, I was scared stiff. I was actually terrified of going and interviewing this guy. And, uh, and so, anyway, I, I kind of, uh, I, think, I think I video recorded, I can't remember, although back in those days, I don't know, we would have had a Super 8 camera or something, I don't know what we had, but uh, anyway, I sort of prepared myself to go and interview this guy. And, um, and so, I, I, I go into his office and he's this burly kind of stereotypical union kind of guy, and, uh, and sit down and I'm this green-haired, you know, kind of uh, little kid sort of working on the opposite side of the spectrum to what he represented. And so I asked him about his ideologies, which you do when you talk to a union official. And without hesitation, he said, oh, yeah, I'm a, a Marxist communist. And I was like, oh, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I actually didn't know that that was the ideology that was driving the union in its engagement with us. And I kind of, I realised that you and I are functioning in a society that has an ideology behind it that is driven by an incredibly insidious perspective on life. And so we need to be aware of that. And that's what this scripture that we've just read about is actually touching on. In demolishing the entirely massively corrupt culture and smashing warped philosophies and tearing down barriers erected against the truth of God. These ideologies are against God. And so my comment and my statement is not about right or left wing union, um, unionism or anything like that. I think unions have their place and, and uh, uh, very, very helpful. Um, so it, um, uh, my comment is not about that, but it's the realisation that there was an ideology behind everything that was happening. So we're trying to deal with workplace disputes on a building site that were ideologi uh, ideologically driven. It wasn't about the safety issue on the site, it was about a, an agenda behind that. And so we're trying to deal with the symptom, but it's always going to pop up somewhere else because there's an ideology behind it. And so if you and I are just dealing with symptoms and not addressing ideologies and are aware of the ideologies, then we find ourselves uh, fighting a losing battle. I've recently uh, started reading a book by Mark Sayers called Reappearing Church. 
And in this book, he's talking, he, he pushes back against the deconstructionism around the church. Because the publicity that we hear around the value and the importance and the sacredness of the church is, is that its, its effectiveness is diminishing around the world. And so we deconstruct and we shouldn't do church this way or that way. And, all, and every, everybody's got an opinion, but nobody is actually willing to step up and, and uh, offer alternatives. And so, you know, people naysaying about the role of the church in society. And instead of uh, proposing maybe a reconstructionist renewal approach to how can we as a church be more relevant, more in touch, more on the edge of our seats when it comes to reaching society, you know, I think that that, that becomes the, the question that we should be asking and having a reconstructionist renewal approach to the value of church in society. Church has been around for 2,000 years. It's not going to go away. We may need to reinvent and revisit how we do church, but ultimately we need to be gathering in the presence of God and celebrating with one another and celebrating the goodness of God so that when we go out into our workplace the rest of the week, we're actually carrying something that's going to make a difference in people's life and in their world. And so in this book, Mark says, he goes, how the left and right work together to undermine us as Christians. And he goes on to say, to the political right, salvation is in the expansion of individual rights, looking to free markets unleashed from government control and restraints. To the left, the enemy of freedom is in the traditions, structures and inherited wisdom of the West. Deconstructing Pre-existing norms such as family, sexuality, gender, language and culture. The foundational containers in which people find place and meaning. So it doesn't matter if you've got a right or left wing perspective. There is an ideology behind it that just wants to dismantle the value and the worth and the meaning of each and every single person. And so we're dealing with that. And we're challenged with that. So both the contemporary left and the right seek to expand personal freedom as a solution to the human condition. And yet we are drowning in freedoms but thirsting for meaning. People don't know why they're here. They don't have a sense of purpose. And in the face of this, you and I carry meaning into a world in which we live. And the workplace mission fields that you and I have been empowered and placed in to make a difference. So three questions to ask to empower your purpose in the workplace. Do you know who you are? <clears throat> Do you comprehend what you are dealing with? And are you conscious of what you carry? So the first thought then, do you know who you are? This is uh, one of the, my favourite kind of and most inspiring people in the New Testament is John the Baptist. You can read about John the Baptist in John, in Matthew, in uh, Luke, and read about his story. M much uh, space is given to him. And uh, he, was, he was a strange, crude, rough round the edges sort of a guy, out of the box, out of the mold. Uh, and for, yet for all his individual quirkiness, he was effective in his mission of pointing people to Christ, which is what he was there to do. So he celebrated his uniqueness, his quirkiness, his oddity. You know, and I'm not advocating that we live a life like John the Baptist and end up the way he did, beheaded and all that sort of thing. But I'm, I am suggesting that John the Baptist might, might be somebody that you and I can resonate with. 
Let's just read this scripture in John 1, 19 to 23. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am a naughty little boy. No, no, he didn't say that. Monty Python might have said that. I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah had said. Do you ever in your workplace feel like the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Do you actually feel at times that, that you don't have much to say or the opportunity in which to say it? Well, then maybe I suggest that you identify with John the Baptist a little bit. A voice in the wilderness. Because I think that's in a sense what all of us are. A voice in the wilderness pointing people who will want to listen towards Christ. So what made John so effective? Firstly, he knew himself and he knew God. He knew who he wasn't and he knew who he was. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you're not? Do, do you try to be something that you aren't just to fit in? But if you're going to be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and I hope you are, I hope you want to take that challenge, then you need to know who you are. You need to know God. You're free from performing to impress people. You're able to uh, uh, separate yourself from the, the need to be accepted and wanted. I mean, we all have that in, uh, inherent sort of need, but we, if we get that from God, then we're not there to please people and perform to meet them. And so the other thing about uh, John was that he was attuned to God's mission for him. So he knew what he was to do. He was to go and tell people and lead them in repentance. Do you know what your mission is in life? Do you have a sense of why God has you in the workplace or the environment, the learning environment or the home environment, wherever it is? Do you have a sense of why God has you there? Because I think if you do, then you're able to play a significant role for the advancement of the kingdom and changing Canberra for God. And the thing also is, don't try and be something or someone you are not. And that's basic common sense, but sometimes we, we try so hard. So the first thing John knew that made him so effective was he knew himself and he knew God. The second thing, he was deeply aware of the issues that were surrounding him. So there was a cultural crisis of shallow spirituality going on in his world. And people were obeying rules. In fact, shortly after he talks about being one who cries in the wilderness, he talks to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and calls them a brood of vipers. I wouldn't suggest you do that either to your boss in the workplace. But I would suggest to you that you need to have an awareness, a cultural sensitivity to the spiritual temperature and the environment around you. And if it's just about obeying rules and not about engaging in vibrant relationship, then you're missing the point. So you are there for a purpose. If you don't say anything, who will? 
So he was deeply aware of the issues that were surrounding him. I'm going to touch a little bit more on that in a, in a moment. So that's the second reason why John was so effective. He knew himself, he knew God, and he was deeply aware of the issues surrounding him. How aware are you of the issues around you? Do you have an environmental awareness of what's going on in your workplace, of what's going on amongst the people uh, that you find yourself around? That part, that social awareness is an incredible insight that will allow you, because what you're doing is looking beyond yourself. You're saying, God, show me. What is it you want me to see? Because I don't want to do anything I don't see the Father doing. So God, I want to see what you're doing, who you're touching, whose heart is soft towards you, so that I can move towards that. So he, he was deeply aware of the issues surrounding him. The third thing is he knew his limits. His job was not to change people, but to position them so they could be changed by God. Our job is not to change people, but it is to introduce them or bring them into a position where they can be changed by God. I think that when we have supernatural moments like we have in church this morning, whether it's in worship or, or you know, uh, an expression of the gifts of the Spirit functioning or whatever it may be, I think that that makes a difference for God to change people's hearts and lives. I would hope that there would be a, a, a dialing down of the resistance to God and an, an, an awakening of the sensitivity to God. And so there are three things that made John really effective. He knew himself and he knew God. He was deeply aware of the issues surrounding him and he knew his limits. So I want to suggest to you that if, you're, if you feel like a, a voice crying in the wilderness, then maybe you can identify with, with John. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you're not? The second thought then I want to touch on is, um, do you comprehend what you are dealing with? Now, at this point in time, I need to chastise Joel for reading my notes um, prior to the service because when, he's, when he was uh, meeting leading and landing worship, it's almost like he'd read my notes word for word. Even the scripture. How could you do that? How could, how could you? I know. You found them on my seat. And... So do you comprehend what you're dealing with? Have you noticed... So I'm just going to restate what Joel was saying earlier. Have you noticed how much fear is being marketed at the moment? It seems like the media is less about reporting news and more about just fostering fear in people. And, uh, you know, they're pretty good at peddling fear. Whether it's coronavirus, bushfires, stock market crashes, social media impact on our children, financial security into the future, all of these things, the way it's communicated, are designed to provoke fear in you and I. It's part of an ideological thing that you and I are up against. But I want to suggest to you we have a different perspective on all of that. We shouldn't ignore what's going on around us. I'm not saying don't be a responsible citizen. I'm not saying that at all, uh, but we should not be controlled or manipulated or driven by the fear behind what's going on. Our son Nathan and his wife Sash have a shop, uh, a business, and they, part of what they do, they make furniture and home furniture, but they do shop fit-outs. And they, um, they've done recently a shop fit-out for a company called Status Anxiety. <laughs> Status Anxiety. That's the name of the company. And so they make leather goods and things like that. And so you go on their website and you go and you read about, okay, what is, what is it? That's the heading on the website. What is it? 
Status anxiety is the social condition caused by comparing ourselves to those around us. It's measuring how we're doing in terms of possessions, appearance and job titles, etc., resulting in status anxiety. It's no coincidence the question you get asked when you first meet someone is, what do you do? This status anxiety can cause us to make decisions with our time and money that compromise what we really value in order to be successful. This is a, a secular business building a brand around status anxiety. So we're not making light of anxiety, but drawing attention to the potential effect of this condition, which can leave us poorer, uh, as per uh, our very first campaign. Well, there's some, a campaign, that, an advertising campaign they did. <clears throat> we're about worrying less on measuring up to others' perceptions, not taking ourselves too seriously and reassessing real value in areas of our lives. We're for a life lived simply with a greater appreciation for things that last rather than the latest fashion fad. Status anxiety. I want to suggest to you that not only is there status anxiety, there's ambient anxiety. That part of the ideological thing that we're pushing back in at the moment is this ambient anxiety all around us. Am I going to catch coronavirus? If you don't know, go and talk to Sarah. She'll be able to tell you whether you are or not. I did before. I'm not, I don't think. But just go and check for yourself. Um, you know, uh, it, it's this ambient anxiety that's all around us. It seems that society is at a status anxiety level that's off the charts. And the enemy's cashing in on that. And so this ambient anxiety is actually very challenging. Again, Mark Sayers, he, he puts it this way. He says, we become intimately aware of everyone's feelings, concerned about offending someone's shifting emotional landscape. Ambient anxiety accompanies this social dynamic made worse by constant technology and cultural change. So there's this ambient anxiety that's fueled by change, fueled by people who uh, take offense when you sneeze in the wrong direction. You know, it, it's, this, is the, this is the prevailing mindset that you and I are functioning in as believers. Edwin Friedman, a rabbi and family systems theorist, observed the way the toxic anxiety spreads systemically through Western culture, arguing that contemporary culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into an emotional regression. That's a statement by this rabbi guy. That's incredible, isn't it? Our contemporary culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into an emotional regression. This is where you and I work and live and breathe and function day to day, most of the time, except for the two hours on a Sunday, maybe. A week, an hour during the midweek, possibly. Chronic anxiety is, is systemic. Rather than something that resides in the psyche of each one, it is something that can envelop, if not actually connect people. So there's this sense of this enveloping of this anxiety around us, this ambient anxiety. And he goes on to say another kind of change agent, the self-differentiated leader, could bring renewal to the toxic human system. Now I want to suggest to you that this fear and anxiety-driven system is toxic to our emotions and to our health and well-being. But you and I should be self-differentiated enough to be able to say, you know what? I hear all that, but God is for me. God loves me. God 
He's my provider. He's my healer. He's my protector. They're all in the name of who God is. And so if you and I are just out in the world functioning as atheists, we're not going to be believing that and we're not going to be carrying that. But we should be carrying the goodness of God into the places that he's entrusted to us. So into this ambient anxiety, I don't know, can you feel it? Do you feel enveloped in anxiety? Into this ambient anxiety, enter the marketplace ministers with a counter-cultural message. Hey, that's you. You're entering this ambient anxiety with a counter-cultural message that goes something like this. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That's what you are taking into society and into culture to make a difference to change Canberra. How good is that? So it's a countercultural message that God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. He's given us a spirit, he's given us a spirit of love and power and of a sound mind. Not the sort of power that is a power and control power, which is what we're dealing with a lot of the time, say here in Canberra. But it's the power of God that brings people to a place of conviction by the Spirit of God. We actually move in an opposite spirit. So the ideologies are swirling around, enveloping us, this ambient anxiety God has an antidote for. And you and I are the purveyors of that antidote. We move in an opposite spirit. So I want to challenge you. I want to empower you. I want to encourage you, urge you to understand what you're dealing with, but know that you're not trapped there. Don't, don't succumb to the ambient anxiety that's out there. The third thought then, are you conscious of what you carry? Which is building on from that spirit, that, that scripture, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love and a sound mind. But in this anxiety-riddled epidemic, we actually carry something very different. Philippians 4, 7 says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. We carry the peace of God into this status anxiety spaces that God wants us to be in. The places where we feel like voices in the wilderness and yet we carry the peace of God. Again, Mark Sayers says, We need a new generation of Christians engaged in mission, kingdom vocational living, cultural engagement and biblical justice, filled with His Spirit, formed by the way of Jesus and shaped by heavenly wisdom. I want to suggest to you today that if you go away with nothing other than a, a resounding in your head that you haven't been given a spirit of fear but a power of love and a sound mind and that you have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, they're two things that will sustain you in the workplace when you feel like you're a voice in the wilderness. The failures we see in our society's structures and systems, their inability to truly deliver what our hearts desire, illuminate their incapacity to replace God. The people that you work with, whose name you know and whose name you call them by, have yearnings in their heart, have insecurities and fears, are contending with all this stuff without, a, without an antidote to it. But you have the antidote and its purpose in God. So our tanks of freedom are overflowing, bursting at the seams, yet our tanks of meaning and the relationships are dry and empty. And that's where you come in. You see the value in people. 
You, you see the potential. You call out of them. You see them as God sees them. So you know that God loves them. So you have this perspective about them that maybe they've never heard before. You know what? God loves you. You are valuable. You are, you are worthwhile. And so you, this is what you bring into the situation that you find yourself. This is your voice in the wilderness, the, the goodness of God. So Luke 10 Five to seven. Sorry, wrapping up here. So you and I are carriers of God's peace. So we take peace, the peace of God, into, into places. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. So there's a prayer for you before you go to work. Peace in my workplace. Status anxiety down. Peace in the workplace. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. So by praying peace, you're not going to lose because either it'll make a way for you or it'll come back to you. Either way, you win. Remain in that same house, eating and drinking such thing as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Now I read that and I think, okay, it's talking about a house and stuff like that, but it's also talking about work and wages and things like that. I want to suggest to you that you go into a workplace as a carrier of peace. You will make a difference. You will find yourself um, in a, with uh, doors opening up and opportunities to speak and shift that status anxiety kind of scenario. We are purveyors of peace. We impart peace and we... Um, and we turn the atmosphere, when we turn up, the atmospheres shift. People are restrained in maybe some of the things they say or whatever it is because you've turned up. You're a purveyor of peace. And you need to look for the person of peace in your workplace. Maybe the person who's a little less vocal and is just in the background and you, and you see, are you okay? What's happening in your world? And you invite a conversation. Or maybe it's the loud, boisterous one that is covering, masking something by their vivaciousness or whatever. But this is where you need God to show you. God, show me, show me, show me. Where is peace in this place, God? And so look for the person of peace. And then, because they'll be open to the message of God. You and I are linchpins that God has put in the world between the natural and the spiritual. You might be the only link between someone connecting with their destiny or not. Final scripture for the morning, 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. Welcome to the living stone, the source of life. The workman took one look and threw it out. God set it on the, uh, but God set it on the place of honour. Present yourselves as building stones for the construction of a sanctuary vibrant with life in which you'll serve as holy priests offering Christ-approved lives up to God. You are a priest in the workplace. You are that person sent by God to that mission field of the workplace and I use that term workplace very broadly because it may be your home or, you know, the job, whatever it may be. I think you get what I'm trying to say. But you are the one that God has put in that situation. You are a missionary. Into, you are a priest in that situation. I'm not, I'm not in any of those situations that you are all in. So it's, it, it's a realization that you are in full-time ministry. 
that you have been empowered to make a difference, that you have something worth saying, that you carry something worth imparting, and you see something worth speaking into. And we're serving as priests, building temples one life at a time. Because the temples we're talking about, you and I, individuals, are the temples of God. And so this is what we're building into one life at a time. This is how we'll change Canberra. This is how we'll make a difference. This is what going from moments to momentum is all about. Helping people encounter God in a moment so that momentum will build in their life. So know who you are, the voice in the wilderness. Comprehend what you are dealing with, the ambient anxiety. And be conscious of what you carry, the the peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for this great company of people here, this company of believers. Father, that you you have ordained for us to be the priests in the marketplace, the mission fields where you have sent us, God. God, give us the eyes to see and the ears to hear what it is you're saying and doing in these places. Help us be people of peace in these situations. Help us connect with the right people at the right time in the right way, God. Father, help us not come under this enveloping anxiety and fear. But Lord, help us carry, Lord, not the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Help us know who we are and who we're not. Help us make a difference in the places you have placed us. And Father, right now, Lord, I pray to settle on the hearts of each and every one of us. Can I invite you to stand, please, just for a couple more moments? Thanks for listening to today's message. If you have any prayer needs, email prayer at c3monash.org.au or connect with us online.